You see, we're on a mission from God. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today I have my friend, my longtime friend, uh, a really cool, really special person who has actually ended up becoming a friend to our whole family. And I would even say um, more of a family member than a friend. Wouldn't you say, Anwar? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Welcome, I, I Anwar Pandit. Huh? Yes, <laughs> part Q. Yeah. Well, you're the P, you're Anwar Pandit. So you're the P's, we're the P's and Q's. That's our yes. family. <laughs> Very nice. So how are you, my friend? You're in uh, Houston, which is not far away, but we haven't seen you in forever because of fucking COVID. Exactly. Fucking COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I saw you around... Um, October end, um, while I was passing through for a road trip. Right. You did a drive by, threw some food at us, as is your custom. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm one of those weird people, and I've had this conversation with your husband that I, I sincerely believe that if you cook food or bring food with good love and good intentions in your heart and soul, that it carries the power of healing. Uh, nice. You know, whatever that healing is needed from uh, on an illness or a sorrow. But I, I just truly feel that food can have that power in it. And uh, I, I know it's not an Islamic belief <laughs> or a Christian belief or even a you know, belief of Buddhism or Judaism. But uh, it's just my own made up weird belief system. And hey, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Well, Carol, I <laughs> am all for that. And frankly, I don't know that you will find, I think you could just basically start a new religion based on that and everybody would be on board. You want to do it? You want to start it? I think we should do it and we should create a nonprofit. <laughs> and um, some people might hate us, but some people might love us and be our allies. Well, I'll tell you what, people, This is the, this is the thing I learned as an adult is that people are going to hate you anyway. Like there will always be people that hate you for any reason. Like you have no control over that. So you might as well just do whatever the fuck you want. Exactly. And and that brings me to the lesson in life I've been teaching my kids lately, uh-huh. which is that no matter how nice you think you are, <laughs> you're always an asshole in somebody's story. Yes. Yes. Embrace it. Embrace it. Exactly. So Zed asked me, my son, he asked me, he said, Tad, you, you're, you're a pretty nice guy, really. Whose who's story do you think you're an asshole in? I said, take a wild guess, son. And he just <laughs> cracked up laughing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm not going to take a wild guess. I'm going to let, I'm going to let that just sit there on the table. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I know, I know who it is. <laughs> okay. Um, as you know, since you are probably the only loyal listener of the podcast, I start with icebreaker questions. Are you ready for them? Absolutely. 
you're ready for anything all the time. That's what I like about you, Anwar. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You're like down for whatever. You're like the chillest motherfucker on the planet. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. First question. What is the last thing that you watched on television? The last thing I watched on television was a really stupid old movie called Deadpool. The first one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never saw it. Uh, yeah, I it's it, it's it's really stupid, but um, it is a mood enhancer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, look, I'm all about that. I watch a lot of. In fact, that's like a major portion of my television viewing is just crap that I've already seen a hundred thousand times. But I, it's a it's a diversion and it makes me comfortable, so I just rewatch it. Yeah, that works. Yeah. 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 Okay. Perfectly fine answer. Next question is, what is the last book that you read? Okay. So this is where I will deviate from oh. the last book I read. Oh, and... you're going rogue. <laughs> I'm going rogue. <laughs> I had to be different from everybody else. And instead, I will talk about the current book I'm reading. Uh -huh. um, and this book is called The New Jim Crow. Um, oh, yes. I just read it. Oh, fantastic. Uh -huh. So, so I, I am in the process of reading it. It was gifted to me by a friend. Uh, and um, I think it's fantastic. It's a book that should probably be required reading. And we should have, uh, you know, young people read this. So their eyes are open to some of the injustices in our society and how the system needs a change yeah badly. yeah so this is this is not a new book either it's uh what 10 years old now yes it, like it's 10 years old and uh this is the the new copy the 10th anniversary edition mm -hmm. uh that i was gifted um so it, it talks about a reflection of where we are 10 years later when this book was written first it talks about that and then goes into the book and um, absolutely mind-blowing read, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. It's good because it helps. Like, I think there's a lot of really interesting reading about systemic racism, but this book is so interesting because it does talk about the system part, right? The the actual system and how, and I'm really interested in systems and how to change them. And so what's, but but in order to even begin to think about changing a system, you have to understand the system, right? Exactly. And it's really interesting how the thing, I guess the main thing you get out of reading that book is just how hard it is to change a system, right? It's not a, it's not a, it's not even an ideological thing. Like you can even get all these people who are on board and are like, yeah, we hate racism, but they're not willing to actually do the work that, that is required to change the system, right? It is absolutely powerful. And I would say not to detract from the main theme of the book, but it's a good read just for anybody who wants to learn how to change systems or who is battling something that they consider supremely unfair. And they want to know, or they want to think big picture about how these things get entrenched, how they get entrenched in cultures and, and political systems and things like that. Um, yeah, I don't know why I waited so long to read that one, but it, it was definitely good. All right. 
<laughs> Maybe this is why we're friends is that I do all the talking. And that's completely all right. <laughs> I'm okay doing all the cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. That's why we're friends. Okay. Um, the last question is, uh, what did you have for breakfast today? I have not eaten breakfast. Anwar, we are recording this FYI listener uh, at a quarter afternoon and you haven't eaten any breakfast? I've had tea. Do I need uh, to be, do I need to put on my mom voice? No, believe it or not. Um, I, and let me explain this. Okay. Um, explain so, yourself. So uh, a few months ago, I, I finally just got tired of where I was physically in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I started seeking ways of trying to improve myself. I took prescription diet pills um, that were quite expensive. Wow. They didn't do much of a dent, um, except maybe I lost about eight or nine pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I was physically, I needed to lose quite a bit of weight. Um, So I started asking friends. Uh, One of my friends has lost quite a bit of weight and he's a lot healthier doing um, the spin, what they call the the bicycles. uh, Yes, yeah. Bicycles, yes. That shit is Um, hard. Oh, absolutely. Um, And Eric has gone from being a guy who was told by his doctor to lose weight if he wants to live to becoming an instructor this year. Yeah, he, he, it's been an amazing transformation. Um, so, and then, so he said, yeah, you know, you got to start somewhere. Even if you think you can just do five minutes of working out, start it, do it. You'll feel better. I said, yeah. okay, great. Thank you very much. I will do that. Um, and then I talked to a friend of mine in Ohio and she talked about, she said, have you ever done intermittent fasting? I said, you know what, Jess, I said, I, I failed at it miserably. Uh, she said, this has worked really well for me. I said, okay, tell me your secret. How are you doing it? She said, well, the way I do it is that I have my last meal at roughly before 8 p.m. at night. And so I feel full. I go to bed. And so I'm sleeping through most of it. And then I have my first meal by 11 or noon. And so it's a whole 16 or 17 hour intermittent fast. I said, how do you, st- how do you stay without coffee? She said, I don't know. Coffee and water are allowed. Yeah. I said, wait. So it's not a fast then. <laughs> because, you know, for me, a fast yeah. is no food, no drink, no coffee, nothing. <laughs> and she said, no, no, Anwar, you can have water. You can have your coffee. I said, this sounds great. Okay, let me try it. So I started doing intermittent fasting. And in the meantime, also, I was watching the History Channel, and they talked about how in ancient Rome, they used to see it as a sign of gluttony if you ate before noon. Oh. So, so that further reinforced it. And I was thinking, goodness, so we really don't need breakfast unless, you know, I'm a farmer and going out in the fields and working or something, or quite frankly, a, a parent of a toddler chasing the toddler down 24-7 because you know how much work they are. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, again, my, my sympathies with, uh, some other, with the mothers and fathers, with the young children. Um, so anyhow, at that point, I said, okay, let me try it. So I started doing it. 
And thank goodness, over the past few months, I have lost about 67 pounds. What? Holy shit. Yes. What? Okay. So, all right, let's talk about this. What, like, have you... Have you done like calorie reduction? I'm aside from just the timing. Uh, have you changed no. your calorie reduction? No. I'm eating the same junk I was eating. I eat, uh, <laughs> I eat naans. I eat palaos. I eat biryanis. Uh, you know, the only thing. Okay, so I have changed certain habits. Okay, mm-hmm. first of all, I created this rule: no more ice cream in the house. Oh, that's a dude. That is hardcore. Hard it fucking is, core. Is, what? Yes. But, 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 okay, okay, there, okay. There's, there, there is a relief. Um, I, and I told the kids, I said, look, I'm not buying ice cream for the house because when you two leave to go to your mother's every other week, yeah. I end up finishing that damn ice cream. Yes. So, so, so no more ice cream in the house. I said, any time, any day you want ice cream, we will go to Dairy Queen and I will buy you whatever you want to eat. Mm-hmm. But the catch is that you can't buy anything that goes in the freezer. It will go in your tummies. I don't care what size you buy. So they said, okay. We went from going to Dairy Queen three or four times a week mm-hmm. to sometimes not even once a week. Wow. The kids are healthier also. Yeah. Why? Because um, it's just a deterrent that you just you think, oh, I want ice cream, but then you just don't want to get up and go out of the house. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, that that instant gratification of it being available in the freezer makes a tremendous difference. Yeah. So that was one thing I changed. And then I also started drinking water at the moment I wake up. The first thing I do is I reach for a glass of water. Yep, that's really smart. Other than that, believe me, I... I still eat Dairy Queen. I still eat peanut butter parfaits and blizzards. <laughs> I still eat biryanis and niharis and halims and all that stuff. Wow. Um, but again, like I said, that it's in an eight-hour window. So what happens is that when you only have that eight-hour window to eat in, there's only so much that you can stuff in your belly. It's true. And, it's and, true. and quite frankly... If you're eating the entire 24 hours or, or most of it, um, what happens is a lot of times you reach for junk that you don't need, like mm-hmm. chips and such. But if you only have that eight-hour window, you think twice with your food choices. And you say, you know what? Yeah, I could eat this bag of chips, but I really should eat something that will keep me going. And maybe something with vegetables or meat or, you know, some nice healthy carbs. And, and so you end up making better choices. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's been it. I mean, really, there's, not, there's no rocket science to it. Um, I've told two other friends of mine, and they're losing weight on it also. Wow. That's great. Um, it is great, right? I feel like, look, I, I am all about embracing yourself you know for whatever unique shape you are because I think everybody's made in different shapes and we all have different you know sizes that we're going to be our optimal healthy selves but also it is a fact that we live in a world where now we don't need 
to go look for food, right? Like it's there in front of us all the time. And so, so much of our energy as we evolved was about finding food so that when you did find it, you didn't have to worry about how much you were eating because you had already burned off all your calories. And now you just wander over to the fridge and you start putting (laughs) stuff in your face. And so um, I totally... I totally believe that. Like I, and Janae and I have been talking about this because, you know, after we lost Ami, both of us really, that was like a wake up call for us. And and so we've been talking a lot about like, what are our habits and, you know, what, you know, he and I are both very different. That's the other thing is like men and women's bodies have some real differences about, you know, what you can consume and when and how much before it starts to affect, you know, affect you or you start adding on pounds. So you know, we're both doing kind of our own little thing. And, uh, but the one thing that we, that's exactly what we talked about is that now it's just, it's so easy to mindlessly eat. Right. And so the one thing that we're both doing is keeping track of what we eat. And it's not that we're, you know, trying to be miserly with our calories. Like we're, we're both eating whatever we want pretty much throughout the day, but we keep track of it so that it's a, it's conscious, right? So that when you so, go to do it and you're like, do I really, I just ate like an hour ago, <laughs> right? Do I really need this? Um, and sometimes the answer is yes. My mom made amazing cookies and gave them to us for Christmas. So yes, I do want to eat these cookies, even though I'm fully aware I don't need them, but it's a choice at that point. It's not that I'm just doing it mindlessly. Yes. It gives you a lot more accountability. Yeah. Well, hell yeah, brother. That's awesome. How do you, and I'm assuming you feel fantastic. I feel amazing. Um, you know, I, I was telling my house cleaning lady, I said, you know, where I was, I, I literally had a hard time bending down to mm. pick up things. Yeah. And uh, I mean, from the time that you last saw me, um, I've lost another 20 plus pounds. Wow. And, so, yeah, so, so this journey is still going. Um, it's still got ways to go. Uh, I'm not looking for a, for six-pack abs or anything, but I just want to get to a stage where I can travel comfortably in cheap airline seats to Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody right. has gold and I have mine. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's right. It's about the quality of life that you want to live. And like I said, we, um, you know, but part of it is, you know, dealing with just the physical stuff, but then part of it is also thinking about as you get older, because we're in the same age group. And so this idea that, you know, we have lived probably half our lives at, at this point. And, you know, now it, it becomes exponentially harder. to um to maintain your your health and fitness and all of that stuff and and so a lot of it is like just half the battle is preventative right like if you can keep yourself from eating bad stuff at the wrong time and if you can keep yourself from letting your you know muscles atrophy if you can keep that momentum going then you're gonna it'll be much easier to to maintain for the long run yeah, no, I agree. And, 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 you know, what you touched on in your last podcast about people telling others what to eat and what not to eat. Yeah. Uh, I, I had my neighbors who've lost, again, my neighbors have lost a lot of weight also, but they've gone the high protein, uh, 
what is it called? The, 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 the keto, keto, the ketogenic, uh-huh. yes, uh, the keto diet. And they were telling me about it. Oh, you should do that. You should drop the carbs. I said, I am not going to drop anything. I am going to eat what I want to eat, what I am good at cooking. And I'm just limiting myself for the hours that I eat it in. Yeah. So if that works for me, that works for me. I'm glad this is working for you. But you know what? I'm happy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, that's the other thing that we, and this is going to end up, I think, going into a much larger conversation for us. But uh, for Janaid, like he, he's South Asian, right? And he's not ever going to go without rice. That's just never going to happen. He's never going to not have rice in his life. <laughs> like exactly. anyone who suggests that is a damn fool. And so, you know, I mean, and and that's just part of, the culture. I mean, I think people have evolved in all kinds of ways around the world to eat all kinds of different foods. And it's not necessarily the foods that are terrible. It's, it's the lifestyle that goes with it. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why he has bonded with you uh, so, so quickly <laughs> is because uh, he and I, I just want to say for the record that you and I were friends first, and then right. I introduced you to my husband, and then you guys became buds. And the reason, first and foremost, was that you are a goddamn genius in the kitchen, right? And my husband is <laughs> passionate about many things, but the, the like, probably top of the list is food and, and you know, Desi food, Pakistani food or Indian food. So he is, you know, he's a a devotee of you now. Um, But let's talk about how you got to be this person. Because I know like every South Asian person I know loves South Asian food, but you decided to go a step further as a man and and become like this amazing cook or yeah and you know home cook and um what is it that made you decide that this is aside from you know what you said before you wanting to start a religion based on this what 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 drew you and at what point in your life did you realize that food was your love language and that you were going to master all this shit that you do because it's unbelievable i'm actually afraid to tell people about it because then i'm afraid they're going to try to steal you they'll be like oh we're gonna steal anwar he's gonna be our friend now i'm like oh fuck you he was my friend first (laughs) (laughs) so you know my my father is just a gifted cook first of all part of it may be genetics uh second you know was the fact that i grew up in a home where there was house help and somebody else was always cooking. Um, so quite frankly, till I was over 20 years old, I had never cooked an egg. Oh. Nothing. I had never cooked anything. Um, so That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So and, and then I moved here to the United States, and my brother was getting his master's at Wright State, and I was getting my bachelor's. Well, then one of my dad's clients said, oh, tell your son, if he's an engineer, he can come work for me and he can be near you. And uh, so my brother said, okay, sounds great. He packed up his bags and he went to Thailand and I was alone for the first time in my life. Oh, shit. Yes, exactly. Oh, shit. (laughs) Um, And so 
there were a lot of Taco Bells and cereal bowls eaten uh, for quite a few months. Uh, as a matter of fact, Taco Bell employees knew my face and they knew exactly what I would order. <laughs> what did you order? <laughs> Tell me. What's your Two bean burritos. Huh? Two bean burritos was my norm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, anyhow, <laughs> so after that, I said, you know what? I have to figure this out. I, I have to start cooking food. So the first thing I tried <laughs> was a chapati. And um, why would you start there? That's like starting with calculus. Again, it, I didn't know where to start. <laughs> I've uh, still never made a good one. Oh, I make amazing chapatis. And I, I know make you do. Romali rotis also. So <laughs> next time you come, I'll make Romali rotis for you. Okay. So anyhow. <laughs> That was the nastiest, most misshapen chapati <laughs> I have ever seen or eaten in my life. But goodness, it tasted amazing at that time. Yeah. I was like, that's it. I'm onto something. I can do this. Um, there were other mishaps, like the time that I put 12 habanero peppers in about two pounds of beef. What? <laughs> You don't want to know. It's an experience that you experience twice. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there, there were other mishaps. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, so so I started, you know, getting really into it and, and asking mom on the phone, like, how do you make this? How do you make that? And uh, my mother would say, oh, yeah, that's simple. You just do this, 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 this. And she would forgetfully <laughs> leave out two or three critical ingredients. <laughs> so, um, anyhow, so I, I kept at it and uh, just, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately married somebody who was a terrible cook um, and she was... Um, very good at burning food. So I would joke and say, oh, it's Cajun style again. <laughs> Cajun blackened. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, that wasn't very nice. You know, <laughs> I shouldn't have. But anyhow, we, we all make mistakes and it takes two to tango when you yes, get yes. to a divorce. And um, so, so I kept getting better and better. And then I got interested in tandoors and I built a tandoor in the backyard, you know that, and um, and there were many peace offerings to that tandoor and to the other tandoors that I have in my garage, because it is extremely difficult to have a piece of ground meat stuck on a metal rod, holding it vertically into okay. a fire pit. For people who are listening to this podcast who are not familiar with right. Asian cuisine, what is a tandoor? So a tandoor is basically uh, like a brick oven, like the Italian brick ovens they use for pizzas, except that it is a vertical brick oven. Mm -hmm. It's a clay oven and has a fire pit or fire source at the bottom, uh, which may be lit charcoals. And the temperatures inside that pit can get up to 600 or even up to 900 F. Um, so it's a very hot environment, which cooks food very quickly, um, and it doesn't let the food dry out a whole lot. You can make flatbreads in it on the walls of the clay oven. Mm -hmm. And also, I had these long sword-like skewers that I either put pieces of chicken 
or mincemeat kebabs, which have um, spices and onions and ginger and garlic in them um, that's applied to the skewer and then it goes inside the pit to cook. Um, so that... And then you just uh, decided one day, like, were you just sitting around the house thinking, boy, I would really like a sea kebab. Um, right. I'm going to go build a tandoor in my backyard. Absolutely. That's exactly <laughs> what I decided. Because, because I went out for Pakistani food and Indian food, and I was thoroughly disappointed. Yeah. So had I gone to a Himalaya restaurant here in Houston, I may have never found that motivation. That place is the only restaurant where my children do not sit like food critics complaining how <laughs> this is not right. That is not right. right. Otherwise, every restaurant I take them to, they sit there like food critics. Honestly, complaining, this, this naan is not soft enough. Look at this, how stretchy it is. My God, can you guys please just live in this moment? <laughs> All right. So you, you got the tender down and, right. um, and then what next? Um, and then, so once I get, once I got that down and I had the biryani down and the curries down and such, I started focusing more towards Thai food. And so, so one thing at a time, I've been conquering Thai food. My pad thai is finally on point. Nice. Uh, so is my lob. And, and, you know, these, these aren't made from packets. Uh, and then I started Lately, I started mixing foods and um, experimenting with fusion. Whoa. So, so, so the butter chicken, um, you know, I used to feel guilty because it uses heavy whipping cream. <laughs> and so not the healthiest thing. Um, so I started substituting coconut milk into that. Oh, nice. And yeah, and, and because of the rich spices, my kids couldn't tell the difference by a whole lot. And so I said, you know, okay, so, so there's this, this sauce and, and, and it's a delicious sauce. And how about if instead of eating it over rice, we were to mix it with noodles. So I took pot thai noodles Whoa. and mixed those with the butter chicken. <laughs> wow. And the kids just went nuts over it. <laughs> so now I make that once a week. I love that your kids are your guinea pigs, as it should yes. be. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, I, let's do a little backstory here because there's a reason why you're doing um, doing Thai food also. Now, you right. started out in you started out in Pakistan. That's where you were born. Correct. In Kashmir, and the thing um, about Kashmir, not exactly. Oh, okay. I, I, my family's from Kashmir. Okay. Um, but I was born in southern Pakistan. Okay. Uh, the same city as your husband. Oh, okay. But you are Kashmiri. Yes. Yes, your family is Kashmiri. Okay. Sorry. Um, so you you have this sort of, or at least you've explained this to me. I'm going to ask you to explain it to the listeners. There's this food culture of Kashmir that is quite unique. And tell us about that. Okay, so um, so Kashmir has this food culture where we celebrate gluttony. Um, <laughs> honestly, um, we we have uh, we have this feast um, that is served at weddings and at special functions called the Wazwan. And what the Wazwan is, 
a feast where you serve anywhere from 32 to 36 courses of food. Nice. Right. <laughs> How long does it take? How long does it take? Oh, it it takes a full day of cooking. Um, no, no, you to know, eat it. it. Like how long? Oh, like how long it. is a meal? It's, uh, it, it, it's it's kind of a ceremony that just goes on for a few hours. <laughs> uh, you know, you you slowly numb on a little bit of appetizers here and there, and and you taste a little bit of everything, or if you can, uh, yeah. you know. Um, I don't think anybody tastes all 32 or 36 entrees. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, it, it, you know, th those men who are professional cooks of the Wazwan are known as the Waza. And uh, it is a very respectable profession for these men and mm -hmm. it's passed down in the family. Um, I certainly am no waza, but some of the dishes like the goshtaba, that's something that, yeah, we, we make at home also ourselves. Um, and, um, what is it? well, it's, it's kind of like, um, humongous meatballs <laughs> cooked in a yogurt sauce. Okay. Okay. Yes. So not, 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 um, it, the, the whole feast is certainly not vegetarian friendly. Uh -huh. it, it's very heavily meat based, yeah. uh, and, and definitely not vegan friendly. Right. Um, so, um, and is it, is it something that's done for, um, just like special occasions or yes. people? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's done for special occasions. And, uh, you know, even, even in Pakistan, if you go to, to Lahore, uh, where there are a lot of Kashmiris in, in Punjab, uh, and you ask them, so tell me, what are the Kashmiris like? And you, if you ask any Punjabi, any anybody over there in Punjab or Lahore, they will tell you, Kashmiris, oh, they love food. They're fat. They're big. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and they, you know, if somebody really knows our people, uh, they may... Uh, and mention some more uh, personal traits, like they might tell you, oh, they have long torsos and short um, limbs. And um, so I, I don't know whether you, you heard that there was this app uh, some time ago where you could give anonymous messages to people. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, on Facebook, people were doing that. The kids were doing that. And I said, all right, fine, I'll jump in. I'll do that. And somebody was kind enough to say, this compliment that my best friend Megan still laughs about, uh, which was, I want to hug you with your T-Rex arms. <laughs> I, okay, I, I have say, known you for many you? years. I have never, never had that thought enter my head that you have T-Rex uh, yeah. arms. So one of my brother's friends who was uh, big time into fitness, he saw me and he said, wow, you could be a really great powerlifter. I said, well, thank you. You know, I, I think I'm a strong guy. Yeah, I could do that. He said, yeah, because you have really short arms. <laughs> what is that? Fuck you. <laughs> what the fuck? Okay. I, you learn something new every day. Yeah. And so now Zed makes fun of me also because he'll put his arms up next to mine and he'll say, yeah, let's compare arm reach. And I'm like, shut the hell up, man. Aww. <laughs> well, you know, it's your teenager's job to um, to mock you and make fun of you. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so then, how did you how did you come upon your um, your interest in Thai food? Um, so, so 
interesting story. Um, you know, I've, you know have, I was born in Pakistan and raised there um, for quite some time. But then in 1980, my father decided after selling quite a few of his properties in Pakistan to move to Thailand and start uh, a restaurant over there and also a tailoring shop. He, but he eventually got into the carpet business. And in 1986, when he was visiting during my summer vacation, I said, Dad, you know, I've spent my entire life away from you. Uh, you were either up, in, up north managing the hotels, and now you're in Thailand. I really want to live with you. And he said, okay, ask your mother and we'll move. My mom was sitting right there. I said, mom, can we move? And she said, I'm okay with it. Believe it or not, wow. a week later, we left Pakistan when we moved. I told my school friends, I called them up. I said, guys, I'm moving. I'm, I'm leaving Pakistan. And they thought it was a joke and it was, you know, some, some prank. And they, I said, no, I'm really, I'm moving. I'm, I'm leaving. And they said, okay. So, and I moved. Um, so wow. just where uh, in Thailand, in, in Bangkok? Bangkok. Yeah. yeah, right in the heart of the city. So August 24th is a very How important. How old were you? I was 15 years old. Holy cow. Yeah. And so that move, and, and I had been to Thailand before to visit dad, you know, um, but that move uh, was amazing because Amanda, um, growing up in, in Pakistan, let's be honest here, I was raised in a very macho, very homophobic society. Mm -hmm. And Thailand maybe because they were never colonized, is a very open and accepting society of the LGBTQI community. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize but, that. I knew there were a lot of, there's a lot of cultural fusion there because there's several cultures that are part of Thailand, right? Right, yeah. right. Even, even the following of faith has traces of spiritualism and Hinduism in it. Um, and, um, so, so, so moving there, the, there were a lot of cultural norms I had to learn. I had to learn the language and also then I had to, uh, adjust to quite frankly, j just, uh, everyday life, like mm -hmm. taking off shoes before you went into the classroom. <laughs> oh, Yes, imagine that. Wow. Uh, and 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 uh, you know, and 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 bowing uh, to say hi and uh, having that personal space. So you know, Pakistan, especially culture, Kashmiri culture and Kashmiri people, the concept of personal face doesn't exist for them. <laughs> Everybody hugs. I mean, Sadia would be the most miserable person in a Kashmiri household. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love that sister of mine, but she would be miserable in, among Kashmiris. Um, so um, anyhow, um, so Thailand is is very much like you. Now th there's a lot of hugging. You know, there's a lot of Western culture that's been uh, accepted into the society. But I remember you would see kids come at airport, see their mothers, and there would be a why, no handshake, no hugs. Wow. Yes. Um, so, so getting used to all that and the new language and the new food and, um, was, was, was an amazing experience. And then while going to school, uh, at the uh, private British prep school that I was attending, 
they introduced us to ice skating. Yes, oh. in the tropics, in Thailand, in Bangkok. <laughs> and yours truly uh, picked that up very quickly. What? And, okay, yeah. I've never heard this about you. What? I, I still have my ice skates, yes. What? Okay. So uh, I picked that up very quickly, and I absolutely loved it because I was born with uh, bent in legs. Oh. And uh, back in the 1970s in Pakistan, unfortunately, nobody was kind enough to get me the type of braces to straighten those legs out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so as a child, uh, I was often laughed at and ridiculed about the way I ran and walked. And so ice skating was this amazing world of freedom where nobody ridiculed me. I was just on the ice moving fast, going left and right. And it was just amazing. I I would go and ice skate five, six, seven hours at a time. And my father is is probably the only human being on this planet who has never, ever doubted me. And he will never, ever doubt me. If I call him right now and tell him that I'm training for the astronaut program with NASA, he will say, (laughs) great. I'm happy for you. What can I do to help? <laughs> That's freaking amazing. Right? And, yeah. and so, so when I told him, I said, Dad, I want to play hockey. So he was going to Canada to see some family. And he carried <laughs> hockey sticks and equipment from Canada <laughs> for me. To Thailand. Yes. yes. And, and, and I played hockey for some time. And it was wonderful. It was an amazing experience. Um, And then while attending college, I realized that taxation and auditing classes for the accountancy program in Thailand was in Thai. I can speak Thai and fluently, um, but I can't read or write. It's 54 letters and nine sounds. Wow. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, so, so that's why I decided to come here for finishing up my accounting degree. And uh, for one reason or another, stuck around and here I am. Yeah, 30 years later. Do you consider Pakistan your home or Thailand? Uh, You know, I, I consider Thailand my home more than Pakistan. Uh, the reason I say that is because I spent time with my father for the first time mm. on an everyday basis in Thailand. Yeah. And those four years were the most amazing years of my life. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So uh, you ended up here. Are you ever, con- do you ever think you're going to go back? I mean, you go back to visit when you can, but do you, have uh, you ever thought about moving back there? Yes, um, I am hoping to start my master's program next month, mm-hmm. or I, it'll either be an MBA or a master's in accountancy or taxation. Um, I'm just waiting on the transcripts to finalize to start that. And uh, congratulations! Thank you. Um, after that, um, it's still up in the air where I'll end up. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you this right now. I don't plan to stay in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, the places I'm looking at are Austin, 
<laughs> because of the amazing people I've Good met choice. often. Good choice. Excellent choice. Denver, Colorado. Excellent because, choice. Uh, it is a hub for tax technology, as is Chicago, Illinois. I didn't know that. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and uh, basically the entire state of Oregon, except for the eastern part. Uh-huh. Um, and the same thing goes for Washington, because at one point, Amazon wanted to hire me as the tax technology manager and move me up there. But I had to say no, because I would have lost custody of my children. Yeah. Um, but and finally, um, in that bank of choices is moving back to Asia. Yeah. Because um, you know, there's a cultural norm in Asia that doesn't exist in America, which is you can simply go up to somebody's house, ring the bell or knock the door mm-hmm. and say, hi, we were just passing by. We thought we'd stop by. Uh-huh. And people open the door and you come right in and, you know, they don't have to have a fancy meal for you or anything. They'll just maybe drink a cup of tea or coffee with you. Mm-hmm. But but that welcome is there. Yeah. And my parents' home on any given day is always welcoming guests. Wow. I've never been in that home when on any single day somebody from outside didn't come in. Mm-hmm. And I miss that. Yeah. Um, it makes so much sense hearing this, uh, like, cause I've known you for a very, very long time, but, um, your personality, like this puts it into such perspective. Cause this is exactly the kind of person you are. Like it's, it's, and, and I will say culturally, I'm very different. Like I tend to be very introverted and, you know, um, I don't even want to answer the door if the Amazon guy <laughs> comes like, you know, but, uh, so I've often marveled at how free and open you are with guests and just like, there's never been a time when we were like, we should get together. And you're like, yeah, come on over. I mean, you know, I'm just filling you out to see if you've got plans, but you're like, no, let's do it. <laughs> and it's pretty amazing. I mean, that is, um, it's a, I would consider that a generosity of spirit um, and you know, just amazing, incredible, what I can only call Asian hospitality. Like that is the kind of hospitality that I experienced when I went, you know, to Asia. And it's just not, you're you're absolutely right. That's not something that we have here. And when you grow up with that, I can totally see how you would miss it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tried, honestly, I bought this house hoping my parents would stay with me here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I had this huge house. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, they came here for a summer. Yeah. Um, the same summer we had Hurricane Ike. And after that, they said, we're sorry. We, we can't live here. We don't belong in this world. Yeah. This country is very lonely. And um, we, we miss people visiting us. Yeah. I hear that so much from especially older people that come here like that. It took my mother-in-law forever to get comfortable here. And she had to build like really work hard to build up her group of friends. And, um, and then I think part of why she deteriorated so quickly in this last year was because of COVID, right. That she was just 
right. isolated. And the, these, and, and in fact, I remember her saying, um, cause she had come to stay with us after her surgery. Right. And we were talking about, well, what are we, what are you going to do afterwards? She had her own apartment, but she had right. come to stay with us to recover. And we were just kind of trying to figure out what the, what our next plan of action was going to be with her. And she's like, I, you know, I, I don't want to go back there and you know, I, I don't, I can't live by myself. She's like, I, cause she lived in a apartment complex with a lot of older people. Right. And she's right. like, I don't, I'm not like my neighbor, my white neighbor. She said, I was never made to live alone. Like, I can't do this. This isn't who I am as a person. Right. And I was like, well, you know, you don't have to, but, um, but it's that same kind of thing where you're just not capable of having that isolation and that sense of formality around friendship that um that's cold it's it's kind of cold yeah and and that's why you see me on facebook so much because facebook is the one place where i don't have to set up an appointment or time to meet with somebody yeah i just say hey how are you that's so interesting so interesting I didn't even, and you know, being a social media person, I didn't even right. think about that until you just said it, but that makes so much sense. And it explains why my mother-in-law was so into Facebook. <laughs> like and once she figured go. out Facebook, she's like, I love this thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. Well, but I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's um, really intense and and really interesting. I'm glad we've had this conversation. Like I, I do feel like we've talked about lots of things. Um, but I think usually when we get together, it's with our extent, you know, our families, our kids, um, Janae's there. We have sometimes other friends and we don't really talk about your, you, right. And your personal experiences. And I think you're such an interesting person just by virtue of where you've lived in your life right and and the kinds of things you've been exposed to which are very different from mine (laughs) yeah and 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 you know when people have icebreakers one of the icebreakers that people are most surprised by is when people ask what are some of the most profound films that i've seen or like yeah and this will shock you but Forrest Gump. Oh, really? Yes. Why? Because 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 Forrest Gump, he's 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 just an average guy. He's quote unquote the village idiot, who has an extraordinary life. Mm-hmm. And and I feel that in many ways I can associate with him. Mm. You know, uh, like how he had those leg braces as a child, uh, and yeah. and and how he broke out of those leg braces and started running, and 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 for me. That was, you know, my Benton legs <laughs> that everybody made fun of me uh, and, uh, and everybody would beat me in the races uh, for running. Uh, but ice skating somehow strengthened my legs and straightened them out. Wow. And, 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 uh, and the first time I found that out was that we were having these intramural games at my college in Bangkok. Uh, and... Uh, I was standing on one end and um, there was a handkerchief in the middle that you had to pick up. And the person on the other end who I was going to go up against was the 
with a girl and she asked her boyfriend to switch places with her because she didn't want to go up against me. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was definitely at an advantage and and significantly closer to the handkerchief than I was. Um, So I said, okay, uh, what's another embarrassing race? What the heck? So they called my number, 20. He starts running from that end. I start running from this end. Uh, And somehow he got the handkerchief, but my legs had straightened and strengthened so much that I caught up with him. Wow. I was shocked. He was shocked because he was on the track team. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So, so that, that is one of those moments that, you know, um, was just a weird wow moment that you surprise yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I sold carpets to the minister of Thailand, uh, the, the transportation minister, who was a very popular man who was in the news daily, mm. uh, Montre. Uh, he owned transportation companies and everything. And I was 18, maybe 19 years mm. old when I sold rugs to him for wow. dad. And my dad was just shocked. He said, you met Montre and you sold rugs to him? I said, yeah. He came to Sogo where we had the exhibition and I, and I sold to him and um, so, you know, I've, I've had a lot of those amazing experiences in life, um, whereas I feel I'm an ordinary person. Um, I'm, I'm quite frankly a person who has a learning disability of some sort that went undiagnosed. And so as a child, um, every private school or kindergarten that my mother took me to, including BBS, were your husband and I both attended and your mother, uh, late mother-in-law taught. Yeah. Um, they refused me admission, even wow. though my brother was attending that school. My brother was a star uh, and he was always the first position holder. Um, but they said, no, we, we're not going to take him and he can't be educated. That was literally what they said. Okay. So... <laughs> um, you know, and so my mother, I remember just literally crying in front of that principal um, and asking for admission. And she said, you know, all right, we'll try him. They took me as a trial. And anyhow, um, fast forward many, many years later, when I was a trainer with Thomson Reuters, I, for three years, was training some of the smartest tax minds in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that was really the, the moment of validation that I felt, wow, you know, in these people who, who said that I couldn't be educated, obviously, were just, you know, making a judgment and saying, shoot. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And what's so interesting about this is that you, like some people would become very bitter or, you know, um, you know, just get a chip on their shoulder about this. And you have not only been very successful, you know, in your own right, I mean, you've, you overcame sort of other people's wrong and negative opinions about you, but you've turned around and you're one of the most open, tolerant, welcoming, and and generally just like kind hearted people that I've ever met. Like there, there's not a 
it's very rare to find someone like you who values kindness as much as I do and who says, you know, I am not going to judge somebody else. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, even when I don't necessarily understand or agree with them. And uh, so I, I have to say, um, you know, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, the bad experiences of your life were a, a hidden blessing, because fuck that. Like, you shouldn't have to go through bad experiences just to have no. a good life. But also, I, I want to know, I want you to know that I see that and I appreciate that, because that's a choice that you have to make as a person. You don't, to, to take your bad experiences and instead of letting them, you know, erode you and and turn you into a shell of a person you actually just let it expand you and make you a bigger person and that's amazing thank you thank you very much yeah no i um i've always believed if somebody throws rocks at you you can either throw those rocks back or you can build yourself a castle out of those rocks oh how very princely of you <laughs> <laughs> No, I agree with that. That's very nice. Those are good you rocks, know, man. You could use those rocks. Absolutely. And you know, the one thing that you probably never saw about my life uh-huh. is how many Muslims, especially from South Asia, have a chip on their shoulder about my last name. Oh, tell me. Well, my last name is Pandit, mm-hmm. which is common in Kashmir. But it is also the last name of a Hindu priest Brahmin family. Ah. So my great 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 grandfather was from a Hindu priest family with the last name Pandit. Wow. And he converted. Uh, was it an honorable conversion? Not necessarily considering he and his father ran away from their village, which was a village for Brahmins, <laughs> and <laughs> took refuge with a friend um, who was uh, Afghani and Muslim. And then the father said uh, to the friend, if you can take care of my son, I'm going to go to Bengal and uh, do some trade, and then I'll be back for my son. He said, okay. Well, after he got to Bengal, he wrote a Dear John letter to his son, uh, to his oh, friend. Oh, harsh. Oh, yeah. He said, I started a new life. I've met a new wife. And Shit. I'd like you to take care of my son. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, anyhow, so that boy grew up and, and carried on the tradition. And I feel, you know, the fact that I am such a devoted father. I know I am. And it's okay to admit that. Uh, I think. I think part of it comes from the fact that we are trying to rub out that shame <laughs> of, of the father who abandoned his own 11-year-old oh. child. <laughs> they were different times, man. They were different times. Yeah, you know, change your faith, change your family, change your whole latitude. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I, I mean, I think... Um, I think that's fascinating, right? I love those kinds of stories, especially for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, you know, about the history of that part of the world. You know, Kashmir is contested territory uh, right. between India and Pakistan. And, you know, that kind of 
blending of those two religions and two cultures, that was something that has always, you know, it's been there since forever, right? For thousands of years. And so it makes sense that something like this, I mean, there are probably many instances of this kind of thing happening where it is flipped around and did different things. And quite frankly, the people of Kashmir actually have lived in harmony with Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, and Buddhists all there. Uh-huh. And, they've, and they live perfectly well together. You know, I'm sorry, this may be controversial, but India and Pakistan are the ones who have been fighting. Uh, as one man, as one older English gentleman said to me, who had served in the British Army in Pakistan pre-partition, I met him at the Holocaust Museum, believe it or not. He knew wow. Urdu. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, crazy story. I'll have to tell you that another time. But, uh, but yeah, he said, he said, you know, what your story is as the Kashmiri people is like you're the bone. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand. He said, well, you, you're the bone that two dogs fight over and nobody cares about the bone. And that's basically what Kashmir is, mm. that, that India and Pakistan have fought over the, the, the territory of Kashmir. And do they truly care about the Kashmiri people and the plight of the Kashmiri people? I feel, no, I will say that for both nations. And if it angers somebody, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is just another case of people drawing lines on maps without thinking about the people that live there and the implications and then nation states coming up and, and wanting to, you know, have ownership over it. I mean, exactly. and, and fighting about it. I mean, this is a, this is not an isolated incident, although it's definitely um, one of the more, I guess, contentious parts, places in the world where this happens, but it's, it happens in lots of places. And, you know, we know, we know, we know right. where this has happened. Yeah. Right. And that's why when I was moving to the United States, uh, my father said, uh, I said, you know, dad, I, I, I may want to live there. And he said, look, son, we're already out of Kashmir. We're, we're refugees anyway. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you decide to live in Thailand or the United States. Yeah. Well, I am glad that you decided to live in the United States because I don't know that I would have ever met you if you hadn't come here. But wherever you go in the world, um, I hope, I, I know from now on, we'll be friends, lifelong friends. Absolutely. We're, we're family now. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, let's um, wrap up this conversation. I, I feel like you're going to have to come back because we, we've barely even scratched the surface. We haven't <laughs> talked about a lot of things, but uh, you have so many interesting stories to tell. And I'm truly blessed that you're my friend, that I live close enough that um, when there isn't a goddamn plague happening, I get to see you on a regular basis and that I've been able to benefit from your amazing cooking um, for which I am always grateful. Thank you. All right. Any last parting words you want to tell all six of my listeners? Yes. Um, First of all, I'm just extremely grateful for this opportunity. Um, and I will leave you with the lesson that I give my children, which is we are all assholes in somebody's story. (laughs) Amen. Amen.
and don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.